great gifts you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So today we'll be rounding out the end of our little trip through Thessalonians in Thessalonians chapter 5, just a bit, and then moving on. Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. And we beseech ye, brethren, to know them which labor among you or over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brother, warn those who are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all (coughs) appearance of evil. And the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, our Father, as we look into your word today, we just pray that you would bless this event, Lord God. That by your spirit we would be taught and transformed and made new that the power of your word, Lord God, of these prophecies spoken so long ago would be rich and new and alive to us today. And we praise you and thank you for this great thing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, praying without ceasing is not easy. There are some other things in here. It says, don't quench the spirit. Now, I don't want to get too spiritual. Y'all know I was raised Pentecostal, so I have this tendency to get a little spooky and spiritual on y'all Presbyterians from time to time. But at the same time, it's just the Bible. You do notice that I was reading out of the King James Version and not the ESV Version, and there's a reason for that. But the thing is, despising the prophecies... In some churches, that would be that you're despising things being said right now, but the context of this seems to be despising the things that are already written here for you and for all people of all times. It does have a certain context. We've been talking about the church and the nature of the church, and so you know a few things that we've gone over again and again. Number one, there is an actual church in the Bible. The idea that we're all supposed to be home churches and there's not supposed to be any elders and not supposed to be any pastors. And we're just supposed to get together and like have lunch and hopefully something spiritual will happen. Okay, but they didn't do it in that way in the Bible like ever, right? And it seems that again and again and again as you go through the Bible, the Bible's maintaining a certain structure, not exactly the same as the Old Testament, but a parallel, fulfilled, brightened, sharpened, clearer picture in the New Testament. 
And so when all of these books are written, they're written to specific churches because there was expected to be a church to receive it. That's how we know that it is also for us. But there are also certain emotional and spiritual elements in here that are also for us. There is a certain path to the happiness of the church in history that comes down to the Christian. Now, there's all kinds of churches out there, and they have different focus, right? Some churches are big on missions, and they just do missions, 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 because that's what they feel called to. Some are called to educate the flock, and so they tend to focus on that. There are different personalities of churches, just like there are different personalities of people, and you've got to figure out whether or not you fit in that specific one at that specific time with what they're trying to do. And there's a certain legitimacy to thinking different people are called to different things. The Apostle Paul, he evangelized the world. He went all the way around the known world three different times during his lifetime on foot, evangelizing entire new cultures that had never heard of Christ. Whereas Peter and some of the other guys, they pretty much stayed at home. They did their entire ministries in Jerusalem until they were called to somewhere else. This is very similar to what happens to the individual Christian, but within the context of the church. So what we want to avoid is a complete personalization of the Bible to where it speaks to me in a different way than it's ever spoken to any other Christian and also a kind of artificial structuralization of the church where the church itself becomes the instrument of worship. The church itself is the religion, not Jesus Christ and the Bible. Now by our own historical paradigm, we kind of think of it as this. The thing where the church became more important than God or the Bible... That's the way we felt about Rome 500 years ago. And it kind of caused the Reformation, where the people said, we're going back to what the Bible says. We're not going to replace God with his church. But there were other movements that tended to replace the person and their emotional well-being with the church, to where every person became a church unto themselves. And those are the two extremes that we try to avoid. At the same time, here he is speaking to the people among yourselves, but also talking about what goes on in the individual Christian. The maintenance of the ongoing spiritual and emotional life of the Christian, as we all know, is not an easy thing. But the big problems in the individual Christian life tend to come from not doing the little things that God has given us to maintain. Now, at this, I could give you an easy five-point or a seven-point list of things to do to make you feel more spiritual, right? And that would, you know, be very easy for me, but not very beneficial for you. Because lists of rules are just not the best ways to get things done. Events and things to be done that are felt and experienced and tasted and touched, those are the things that tend to lead to a spiritual benefit. As far as the, uh, as things go, we have a very strong church. (laughs) What I mean by that is, A lot of you have walked with the Lord for a long time. You're not novices in the faith. If everybody in the church had been a Christian two or three years, even in the same building with these same elders, we would have a very different church, right? So when you have people that have walked with the Lord a long time, the give and the take and the needs and the desires all become a little different. But there are things that we need to be reminded of again and again. Uh, So... When there's a a very new church with people very young in the faith, you tend to be focused again and again on the fundamentals. You need them to know all this little stuff, and you need them to know it quick, right? But at the same time, most of the work that's done in the church is reminding people of things they already know, not telling them new stuff that's going to be super exciting. 
We've all seen the person who's a new convert to the faith. They've walked outside of the faith for a long time. They've been involved in all kinds of stuff, and they come to Christ, and they're just ecstatic about it. And it's very exciting, and it's easy to look at, right? And so all the big testimonies and the big books are about these strategic conversions of very well-placed people. But the greatest blessing, the Bible says, is not the conversion of Paul. It's the people that walked in the faith their entire life. They never did not know the Lord, and they go to the Lord on their last day. In other words, having known the Lord your entire life without the power of an immediate life-changing conversion is the much greater blessing, even though the other one might seem to us to be more exciting. So within the church, telling you things you've already heard and reminding you of things again and again so that they stay in your heart and mind through life, is most of the work of any true church. That's why, you know, how many of you have now have memorized the Apostles' Creed? You've heard it so many times, right? And yet there's this thing in the Bible, remind, remind, bring back to mind, memorize, remember, bring back things that are already known and make them a present reality. So here, in not despising the prophecies, it's not saying wait around for new prophecies every day. That's not how you don't despise prophecy. The entire book is prophecy. And it's saying remember the things that are in here because they will make you strong and preserve you to the last day. It says rejoice in everything, whether it be good or bad. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Avoid even the appearance of evil. And then the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly. Now I'm going to talk about something that's very uncomfortable for me to talk about. Uh, hopefully it will be uncomfortable for you too. Uh, sanctification, personal purity, and holiness. The reason you don't want to talk about this is because it sounds very self-congratulatory, Right? Churches, you know, get all, oh, we're so holy, we're so, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of that. It can sound very self-congratulatory. And yet, does the Bible talk about it a smidge? Does it talk about it a little? It talks about it a lot on an ongoing basis, so to avoid it is not healthy for you. And yet, at the same time, if we're going to maintain our spiritual well-being and our sight of Christ and be focused on these things so that this can flow out to a secondary thing of our emotional well-being and how we feel, maintaining our holiness and personal purity is definitely a way that the Bible gives to get to that place, right? Now, I'm not saying people in the congregation have a big problem with sin, uh, you would if it weren't for Jesus, but I'm not saying that everybody's caught up in sins. And yet at the same time, I do want you to be on constant guard about the things that the culture or the magazines or the television puts into your view so that it goes into your eyes and becomes a part of your thinking. And you might sit there watching that whole show thinking, oh, they shouldn't be showing this. Oh, she shouldn't be doing that. Oh, she should get to church. <clears throat> But <laughs> you're watching the whole thing, letting it imbibe its way into your soul to become a part of the music that you listen to and the people that you pay attention to. One of the worst days in any year is the day of the Oscar Awards, <laughs> where we take a very innocuous statue made of gold and we hold it up and it spins around and a billion people around the world watch it. Wishing they could get one of those idols, right? And everybody walks down that uh, carpet, 
and they've got all these important people. Oh, I think she's wearing Coco Chanel today. It's, you know, we talk about what they're wearing and how beautiful they are and how many movies they've made. And in a sense, in a very light sense, because it's pretty innocuous, but it's a good example, we worship them for a little while, right? We just want to see them, and a little bit we want to be them because they're so beautiful and everything's so perfect and cultivated, and the music starts, and the speeches are given, and somebody up there is thanking Jesus because they better be, right? They'll be in trouble next week, but they're thanking God tonight. And here's the thing. Uh, does it hold up a pattern or an interpretation of reality which is completely dissonant with your professed faith, though? It is, in a sense, a church service, isn't it? The music is there, the speeches are there, the philosophy is there, the leaders are there that we model ourselves after. So often we bring into ourselves exactly the pattern that will lead to our sorrow. One of the things is holding up the things of the world as if they're the things of heaven when they are not. Uh, which one of the apostles did really well in life and business after the resurrection from the dead? Every one of them died a painful death in sorrow, rejected by men. Now, here's the thing. They are our heroes to us, and it's easy to hold them up. This is one of the reasons there was this deep dissonance in the medieval church between the real life of the church and the life of heaven, right? The other day, we've got this philosophy class, and we're going over that great work by Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? And we're watching the videos, and in one of the videos, it has these two contrasting interpretations of the church. One, there's the church leader, and he's in all these robes, and he's got his pointy hat, and he's being carried so he doesn't have to walk and put his feet on the dirty ground. And he's being carried along by four guys. And he's a minister, right? And there's another one, and he's hunched over, and he's got sticks on his back, and he's in rags, and he's also a minister. And in this, he's contrasting two views of ministry that the, uh, that, uh, that the apostle Martin Luther, I, don't, I should just never say anything like that, that the pastor, Martin Luther, said are the interpretation of the cross of glory and the cross of blood. Some people interpret the church as the cross of glory. It will be a glorious, wonderful thing. It will make us strong. It will make us powerful. And they tend to make the church into a manifestation of the world. They want huge, beautiful buildings. And face it, they want armies. And they want the church to take over stuff. And it was the same in Jesus' day. But the church of the cross, the church of blood, knows that it's probably a walk of losing and suffering until we have the glory that we have in Christ at the last day. And so these two interpretations of the church have gone through history. The cross of glory and the cross of shame. Have you been made ashamed? Have you made yourself acquainted with griefs and sorrows? Is it okay if you're not that popular and not that golden, and if there is no one around to worship you? If men choose to reject you because of Christ rather than honor you because of Christ, are you willing to put up with that? Because it says a lot about what exactly your faith does hold in itself. One of the reasons I did that King James, uh, you know, in one of the classes we're going over Western literature. A few of the moms really want their kids to... In the, in the usual schools, they're not really allowed to teach exactly Western literature anymore. Many of you especially if you have some gray hair, you probably actually read Western literature because it was pretty much the only literature that there was. 
Western Christianity produced language and it produced poetry and it produced art so that now we have these things now. And so we go back and we read Shakespeare. Why? Because, you know, just if you're going to measure these things, Shakespeare and Milton and Chaucer, these are the guys that did things with the language that made it the language that it was. Why do we still use the King James translation of the Bible after all these hundreds of years? Because nobody's written a better one. Here's the thing. They have written more accurate ones, though. Now, I know if you're like in a King James only thing, that's going to be hard for you to hear. But we do translate from the Hebrew and the Greek. And so in our present contemporary language, we can translate more accurately, but we are going to have to translate more thinly. So here's one of the questions that I put to the kids. When God wrote the Psalms, was he trying to write a textbook or was he being a poet? Let me put that to you again. When he wrote the Psalms, was he trying to be a poet or was he trying to write a textbook? I mean, really, you can take anything down and just say what it means, right? And you can make the language more and more thin. But in the Psalms, it opens up. Now, here's a story. It's an apocryphal story, but there's reason to think that it's true. In those days when Shakespeare was writing, even in England, he was thought to be one of the greatest poets ever. There were a couple of other competitors, but Shakespeare was pretty great. And Elizabeth loved him. And Elizabeth was the first real, true Protestant monarch of England. She eventually became the most powerful woman, possibly in history, but certainly in Europe. She was the Protestant daughter of Henry VIII, who went through six wives by really weird means. But he went through six wives. And he had Elizabeth, and she came to the throne, and she loved Shakespeare. She used to sneak out at night in disguise and go see his plays at night, and she would support them financially. And one of the things she asked him to do, I want you to translate some of the Psalms for my personal reading. And so she had the greatest playwrights and the greatest poets of the age translate some of these things. And the story is that at least one of them made it into the King James Version of the Bible that we have today. And it's Psalm 46 that apparently she asked him on his 46th birthday. And on his 46th birthday, he translated Psalm 46. Here's the thing about it. And so the 46th word from the first one is shake. And the 46th word from the last one is spear. You can look it up. And so, it seems that Shakespeare, being the kind of guy that we know that he was from reading his plays, wrote his own name into the Bible, because he's just that kind of guy. Still, when you read the modern translations, it's incredibly accurate. There's a care to the phrasing and the phraseology. But you guys know how Shakespeare, you know, uh, the, most of the Shakespeare we know comes from the Avengers movies where, uh, you know, Thor gives us some Elizabethan English, right? And then Iron Man makes fun of him and says, does mother know that you weareth her drapes? <laughs> but if I read this knowing that, and I don't read it like this, God is our refuge and our strength, the very... But if you read it like it's Shakespeare, you start to feel what's behind it and where the power of the words comes from. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, and the mountains shake with swelling thereof, there is a river. And the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God and the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. The heathen raged and the kingdoms were moved and he uttered his voice and the earth did melt. 
The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, therefore, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth, and breaketh the bow, and cutteth the spear asunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still, and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the heathen, and will be exalted in the earth. And the Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge forever. Selah rest. Doesn't it sound like Shakespeare? Well, here's the thing. At that time, they really understood worship very well. It's not that we understand it very well, and they didn't have a clue. They understood worship very well. Lives were short and full of sickness, and death was all around them, and they needed scripture, and they needed a communication of these things that was sufficient to the dire circumstances of their everyday life. So when they read a psalm, they were not messing around. It was not a game. It was not safe. Every word of it was dangerous. And they picked each word to convey the point with glory and with joy. So they did not say things like, he'll put an end to the wars. He'll break some bows. He'll cut some spears. And then he'll burn the chariots because it simply was not sufficient to communicate the poetry and the glory of God in these things. With this, one of the means that he's given you in worship and in the reading of scripture is he's given you access to his glory in these things. And this is one of the means that he's given that brings about these things like personal holiness and purity. You got to treat God like he's the kind of God that he is. And I promise you, there is nothing cute about him at all. When we say to ourselves, God is a consuming fire, think about it deeply, the danger that's included in that statement. On Friday, we were reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We weren't planning it. It just came up in the text of chapter 5 of the book of Acts. And when we got to Ananias and Sapphira, you have to read your way through there in a New Testament context. You start to feel... A little suspicious that the Old Testament God might have snuck his way into the New Testament. Because it says there particularly, there was a man, and that he was deceived by Satan, and he lied to the Holy Spirit, not to Old Testament Jehovah, and so he was cursed, and God took him out, because he misrepresented himself before God and men. That's the New Testament God, not the Old Testament God. And then his wife came in and did the same thing, and God took her out also. Right? Dangerous God is worthy of worship. Acute God is not really worthy of anything. Now you might think to yourself, when we go out there in the world, one of the things that puts people away from true and real religion is that you keep presenting this God of the Bible, and he's a little bit dangerous and a little bit powerful. But I guarantee you the world will not be won by cute deities. There are entire religions out there that offer a cute, assimilable deity who is subject to your works, words, and whims. He'll do exactly what you want, exactly the way you want it. All he does is wait around. Wait around for more love and self-affirmation. But the God of the Bible does not. Philippians chapter 4 also says to rejoice. 
from verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men. Because the Lord your God is at hand. At hand means he's near. He's not far away. Be careful for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With prayer and supplication. When's the last time you've really taken time to sit down and pray to God? And I'm talking about the full bore, on your knees, on your face, door locked, nobody else coming into the room praying. Because that's real, right? Now we do pray in here, but this is corporate prayer. It's a little different. When you come into contact with God, it changes your mind, heart, and soul, and the way you think about these things and the way that you interact with him. But making every one of your requests to God. Now, he can say yes or he can say no, but there will be no peace in your soul until you've given everything to him. We all know in theory that we cannot add a single moment to our life by anything we do in this world. You can do all the things you want to extend your life. You can eat the vitamins. You can work out regularly. You can carry high weaponry. You can wear armor. And you'll still step off the sidewalk and get hit by a bus and die instantly. The Bible teaches us a level of a carefree life which seems incredibly dangerous to merely natural people. But you have to remember the merely natural person has one thing in mind in life. And that's the preservation of life. And the Christian has got to be carefree. You cannot extend your life. Whether or not you live or die tomorrow is completely in the hands of God. So be free. Be free from the dictates and fears of men, right? I'm not saying not to eat some vitamin D3 once in a while, right? But if you think it'll make you live forever, it will not, right? Can any of you add a single second to your life that God has not already planned? It says in the Bible very clearly that he has planned exactly the day you were born and exactly the day you will die, and there is nothing that you will do to change it, even in the slightest. And so aren't you free? Free from fear. Free from fear of men. I mean, the Apostle Paul, they killed him. Jesus, they killed him. Peter, they killed him. But they did not do it on the wrong day. So they were free. The reason they used to go out and preach is they can't do anything to me. The Lord won't let them do to me. Right? Do you have that kind of carefreeness in your life and in your daily thinking where you have given yourself over to God, your life and your death are in his hands, and so you have nothing to fear? I'm not saying you won't get hit by the bus. I'm saying the bus will not be one minute late. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever is lovely, whatever so things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things continually. Do not let the negative, bad, and evil things overwhelm the good and lovely and wonderful things. Because these are the ones that will bring your heart and mind to a place of peace. You should be at peace all the time, but if you're whittling away at it bit by bit, you're not going to have much left over at the end of the day. I want you to be free from care, and I want you to be free from concern, not like a happy fool, like, 
with planning and with care and with responsibility, but at the same time knowing that only God brings the increase. Have you ever farmed anything? I farmed a few things, which is how I learned I do not want to be a farmer, right? <laughs> you are up early and you're planting and you work all day, but there's this ugly thing that happens. I remember when my dad taught me this. We were in Alabama and he was trying his hand at being a green bean farmer. He always had a crazy thing he was doing. This was one of them, right? We had to wait for rain. Have any of you ever waited for rain for your crops? You guys probably had like plumbing and stuff, right? This was the days where you had to wait for rain. Guess what happened if the rain didn't come? Everything dies. There goes your money. There goes your mortgage. You lose the land. So you spend a lot of days thinking about God and rain. He's either going to send the rain or he's not. Every time you plant, you are waiting for God to send the rain. And the right amount of rain and not too early and not too late, right? And for thousands of years, he's been doing this, taking care of it, sending the rain on time. Many of you probably feel this way about your mortgage. That check's got to come through. That next job's got to come through. And just most of the time, just like some crazy magic, it all comes through, right? But it's not crazy magic. It's the love and care and concern of God who is taking care of you, not always the way you want or when you want or how you want, but when's the last time you missed a meal? I bet it hasn't been a lot. So in this, when we turn things over to God, there's a certain amount of trust there that is dangerous and a little scary. I can't just hand it all over to God. What if he doesn't come through? Well, if he decides not to come through, you're not going to be able to fix that. You might surround yourself by money and things and situations in life that you think protect you, but that bus will still not come one minute late. You can't preserve your life. You can't extend your life at the same time. You can have a great relationship with God who is your life. Those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen, the God of peace will be with you. Be with the God of peace because the God of peace is already with you. This is the maintenance of that internal emotional life. Every once in a while you're going to have to sit down and get on your face before God and get this cleared out, right? He's in charge. You're not. You be faithful in the little things. He'll bless you in the big things. He's your life. Your life has already died in Christ. You can't control anything. You can't make anything happen. You can't raise the dead. You can't extend your life. And yet you have literally no problem. It's not a problem because you know he has it for you. Lord, our God and Father, We pray that you would teach us these things, that we would put fear and anxiety behind us. We cannot control these things. We put them in your hands. We pray, Lord God, and tell you our concerns, and you will do what is right and good in your own eyes. In this, Lord God, we have no need for fear of what we will say or what we will do about what tomorrow holds, about the economy or about the virus or about the world or wars or rumors of wars. Whatever happens will happen according to your good and pleasing will. And we have abandoned ourselves to it, to a degree, Lord God, because you will do what is right. We praise you and thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing. The church is one foundation, which is in 206 in the blue hymnal and 347 in the green hymnal.
salvation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is